This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We begin with more on the dismal situation related to COVID-19 in long-term care and what must be done to fix it. The good news is that there seems to be political will at all levels of government and all parties to finally make the changes that have to be made. The latest from the Ontario PCs at Queen's Park is an emergency order, which would allow them to appoint a manager to oversee the response to COVID-19 at long-term care homes struggling to deal with an outbreak. Is that what's needed? On Wednesday, Libby Snymer asked this of Morgan Hofferth, president-elect of the Registered Nurses Association, and Jane Medes, lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. What the management order is allowing them to do is uh, power that they already have under the legislation in an inspection process, uh, which is to order the home to um, hire a management company. And this will just allow them to do that in a broader uh, um, number of times. The problem is, is who's going to manage the home in general? uh, It's still the operators of other homes that are coming in to run it. So, a lot of the big corporations have management companies. So I'm not convinced that this is necessarily the best way because I don't know that the management companies, um, you know, are are coming with clean hands either. They're usually, you know, having problems in their own homes. So I'm not convinced this is the way to go. Morgan Hoffarth, do you have a view on this emergency order, first of all? So I think the long-term care homes, they know how to effectively and safely care for the residents that they have. Long-term care is a specialty area of nursing. Um, Definitely, they need more resources to be able to do their work. One of the challenges in long-term care is that it's difficult to obtain full-time work for your nursing staff and for your PSW staff. So often, they work at multiple homes, which means there can be quite a bit of cross-contamination, if you will, from one home to the other, which makes the spread of illness more likely to occur from home to home, which can be difficult. When the order came in for people to work at just one home, then it made it difficult for staffing. Also, it's very difficult for long-term care to be able to get the proper personal protective equipment. They know the infection control precautions that they need to take for infectious diseases, But when you don't have the equipment to be able to provide the care safely for your residents and for your staff members, it makes it really difficult to manage a pandemic. Certainly, there are some homes that are that do need some assistance in the management, just like at times there's hospitals who have somebody appointed to be there kind of to oversee the operations. There are homes that would benefit from that. 
But in general, long-term people who work in long-term care, they know about how to effectively care for these residents and appointing somebody provincially isn't necessarily the right direction, particularly bringing the military in is not necessarily the right direction. It's getting the people there to work and making sure that there's um, human resources and funds to pay the people who would be coming to work in these long-term care homes who have the specialty and expertise in caring for older adults. Jane, it's my understanding that uh, hospitals can be appointed. Is that a good thing? Well, I think that um, Morgan is exactly right that um, hospitals don't have the expertise in running a long-term care home, and there's uh, definitely a lot of specialization there. So I'm not sure, um, you know, what kind of expertise a hospital would bring into the system um, at this point. Uh, it's a very difficult um, situation right now. Uh, and I, I agree that a lot of this goes back to other problems which can't be fixed simply by having new management. I think that there are definitely issues with management in some of these homes. Um, and certainly when we see multiple homes in one chain sort of having problems, I think that's an issue um, that we have to deal with. But, um, you know, sending in a hospital uh, administrator uh, who's never run a long-term care home and doesn't have that expertise, I'm not sure that that's helpful either. Morgan, what would you like to leave us with on this? Thank you for asking us to participate and for shining the light on long-term care and the reform that is needed within the healthcare system, particularly in long-term care, to make sure that long-term care is home to the residents and that we can integrate nursing and retirement homes into enhanced community care plans and to modernize the funding plan for long-term care and really focus on the quality for the residents who are the people who are living in long-term care homes. Jane, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I really think that we really need to think about do we respect and and want quality care for our elderly people? Um, And we have to have a whole, um, you know, mental shift if we're going to um, do more than lip service to change the long-term care system. Um, These, You know, what's going on in long-term care today is not anything that is unknown or new. It's just on a larger scale than we've ever seen before. So I think we really have to have a shift shift in how we think about the care of our elderly. Jane Medes, lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, and Morgan Hoffarth, president-elect of the Registered Nurses Association. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We learned this past week that U.S. President Donald Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was released from jail after serving one year of a 7.5-year sentence because of fears he could catch COVID-19. Here in Canada... There is also a growing concern about the spread of COVID-19 in our prisons. Canadians arrested for various serious criminal charges are increasingly being allowed to be released. In addition, our judicial court system for the most part has halted operations and the backlog of cases is growing. To discuss, Libby was joined by Toronto criminal defence lawyer Ari Goldkind. So many of the very wrong kinds of people have been released from jails because of the virus. We're not talking nonviolent people like Paul Manafort. We're not talking nonviolent people like Michael Avenatti. We're not talking Harvey Weinstein type of violence. We are talking very significant crimes of violence, acute gun-related, domestic assault-related, child abuse-related. 
things just sort of under the surface of first-degree murder kinds of killings. This has all happened, Libby, while the public is not watching, while the public is busy worrying about the fact that the economy is being destroyed, their loved ones are being destroyed in long-term and nursing care homes, and there are attempts to make this into a massive uh, scandal in terms of prisoners getting the virus in jail. It is a problem. No prisoner should get it. And clearly we have a problem in jails in terms of how to manage it. But the public, Libby, has been completely uninformed about the number. And I emphasize this because I'm a defense lawyer. This, I, I defend these people. I've gotten out myself 30 to 40 in the last month. We are not talking nonviolent people. People who are nonviolent, Libby, I would think there should be no issue with them being safely released if there are circumstances and plans in place to keep the public safe. But we are talking the release of people who not only don't care about the criminal code, but the idea that they're being released from jail and they're going to physical or social distance while your audience is at home, losing their jobs, careers, mortgages, rent, loved ones in nursing care and long-term care homes. We really, Libby, have a problem here that nobody wants to talk about because of the politically incorrect nature of it. I mentioned Paul Manafort because it just twigged on me that, uh, you know, the last time we talked, we said we were going to follow up on this, and this was a good time. But I noticed that in his release, one of the things they cited was that he's 71 years old, he's got some medical conditions. So when you talk about these uh, violent criminals being released. Are any factors like that taken into account? Are they older? Do they have medical conditions? Or is it your basic young guys? The people that are being released from jail are not only violent, but they're the very kinds of people that we see thwarting the orders. And what's happening is that it is younger people being released. 18, 20, 25, no medical conditions. Some try and say they have asthma, okay? But other than a few who come to court with some proof of respiratory conditions, you're talking about people statistically that are at the very least risk of the coronavirus destroying them. People's focus should really be on the fact that they're home, but people who have been separated from society who are violent. I emphasize this, Libby. I'm not talking about nonviolent people. But violent young men have been released back into the community, and I think right now when everybody should be safe at home and knowing that our government is working for us, I can tell you from the inside, while I get many of these people out, and I'll do it today, I'm doing it again later today, I'll do it tomorrow, I just think there's not enough public debate about it. Why are you doing what you do if you uh, don't approve of it, The def- getting these people out of jail? I'll tell you why. That's a great question. And Libby, I don't know if we have 30 seconds, 60 seconds, but it's a, it's a relatively... Something deep- like that. Yeah. yeah. So it's a relatively deeper and more interesting question, but let me give it a short one. I do things because I believe every person shouldn't just be faced with the best Crown attorney the best police officers, and a judge or jury who may be predetermined at times to think they're guilty. My pride in what I do, and I'll I'll make this basically the crux of my answer, is so long as each person charged with something has somebody fighting tooth and nail for them, I don't determine the result. I'm just an advocate. But my belief in a fair fight in a Western world society, given that we're not going to look like a Western world society anymore, particularly after what's been done to us, from other parts of the world. 
My view is that everybody, worst of the worst, should always have somebody capable and competent fighting tooth and nail for them. But just the fact that I think there are problems in the system or things are screwed up doesn't mean that if somebody called me right now violent, wanting to get out, I wouldn't put an argument before a court that was extremely compelling and likely to win because I believe that's what advocacy is about. Criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. It's a big win for CARP on behalf of older Canadians hit hard by extra drug costs because of the coronavirus pandemic. The crisis has caused drug shortages, which means we've all been limited to one month's supplies of a prescription rather than the customary 90 days. And this initially meant more co-payments, which can really add up if you're taking a number of medications. But after CARP's advocacy efforts, we got some good news from the governing PCs this past Wednesday. Joining Libby Snymer to talk about the win, Marissa Lennox, CARP's chief policy officer. What we'd heard from our members, I mean, we've frankly been inundated with phone calls and emails from folks saying that, you know, these additional costs, through no fault of their own, were really having an impact on their lives and forcing them to make very difficult decisions about whether to pay for essential medicines or other necessities in life. Um, And so, you know, we urged the government because ultimately at the end of the day, this was a government policy. Yes, it it was recommended by Canadian pharmacists. But it was a government-issued policy, and and so we urged them to cover the cost of these co-payments because they were having such a such a huge impact on the financial well-being of our members and on seniors. It's intended to make seniors whole. It's intended to make ODB recipients whole. That's really what the government was doing. And back in May, early May, um, May 1st, actually, they they launched a consultation. Um, and what the consultation really focused on was, you know, the government was looking at maybe covering one of the two additional co-payments and maybe pharmacies would be left, you know, holding the bag for the balance. Um, they received over 500 responses to this consultation, um, you know, that mostly would have hit local independent pharmacies probably the hardest. Um, a lot of senior complaints as well, saying that they shouldn't be responsible for these additional costs. So I think the government heard them loud and clear and, and really just agreed that until, you know, the, this policy is rescinded beginning of July or end of June, um, that they'll just end up covering the copayments. We know from other research that actually the uh, demographic that is hardest hit when in terms of uh, not being able to cover the cost of medication are people who are just before their, uh, the age of 65, 55 to 65. Uh, what about them? So uh, according to this, to this news release, um, individuals who are um, unable to pay for their meds, maybe they receive an enormous, you know, maybe they have, they have, a number of medications that they need to pay for it, and they're having they're struggling to pay for those costs. May be able to qualify for the Trillium Drug Benefit Program, um, and from what I understand from the release, they're allowing people to to uh, have their income reassessed based on the household income. Maybe that's changed. Maybe they've seen a decline in it, and they may be eligible for some financial benefit through the Trillium drug benefit program where they might not have, you know, a a few months ago. So they're urging people, Ontarians, to reapply if they are experiencing sort of a financial burden um, because of COVID and now because of, you know, having to pay for the additional costs of drugs. So there is that too. I think, you know, it's a difficult time because people have, have seen increased costs associated with COVID and 
And, you know, many are having difficulty paying for things that they otherwise would have paid for. But really, the focus of this program is to really compensate um, the increased costs associated with something that is directly related to COVID-19. Um, so seniors saw an increase in the cost of co-payments because there were fears over uh, supply chain shortages and a hoarding mentality. And so what the government yeah. did is they implemented this policy. And so they're compensating for that decision. That's what this is about. And we do know that some pharmacies have in advance of this decision having been made by the province, some pharmacies were, were taking steps on their own to actually support seniors and reduce those costs for them. Because, you know, in a lot of ways, pharmacies were, you know, they're on the front lines and they were bearing a lot of the frustrations um, and in some cases, criticisms from patients who were feeling like this was a pharmacy issue. Um, so I do know Rexall, as an example, was one of those pharmacies that ended up covering two-thirds of the costs of co-payments for seniors. Just a goodwill gesture. Yep, that was very nice on their part because, uh, you know, when they're dispensing it once a month, they're, you know, that's a labor cost, right? And Marissa, what would you like to leave us with on this? No, just that, you know, Ed, we're, we're glad to see the Ontario government move in this direction. And, and a, a big thank you to all of our CART members who, make this, who made this happen because, um, you know, we, we act on your behalf and, and we hear you and, and we worked hard to get, to get this done. So I'm glad that I think it's a good day for seniors. CARP's Chief Policy Officer, Marissa Lennox. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. During the pandemic, litter has become a bigger problem as people casually throw things like used masks and gloves on the ground in parking lots and elsewhere. Also, we're seeing a lot more packaging of food, often on items that we used to buy without plastic wrap, like vegetables. All of this has prompted Ontario's Environment Minister to start organizing litter cleanup days. Jeff Urek joined Fight Back on Thursday. Well, part of our government's environmental plan was to uh, have a focus on cleaning up litter uh, from our communities and in our uh, environmental areas uh, in order to keep it beautiful, but also to uh, uh, decrease uh, the negative effects that uh, litter has in our communities. Um, you know, you can look at there's over 10,000 tons of plastic each year ends up in our lakes and rivers. And uh, a, a lot of uh, the litter, if it's left to decompose, uh, increased amount of CO2 uh, released into the atmosphere, which is detrimental to our, our, our fight against uh, climate change. Now, what's your reaction? I have to say, you know, sometimes I just can't believe it. I, I can't believe that anyone, after getting all the warnings and all the precautions we're, ta- we're taking, would just take a mask or or those disposable gloves and, and just throw them on the ground. I mean, what's what's your reaction when you see that? Well, I, I think it's it's very disheartening to to see that in our communities. I mean, there's there's numerous reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. Number one is uh, those masks are 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 in those gloves are not going to degrade very much on their own. It's going to pollute our environment, uh, hazardous to our wildlife, uh, hazardous to degrade. But the second thing we got to look at is if the virus, COVID virus, is actually uh, on those those materials, there's a chance that you could transmit that to another individual who might come along and pick that up. So one of our key messages during this this litter day, which we're going to have every second Tuesday of May uh, ongoing uh, to kind of invigorate people to look after and take personal responsibility in their communities and be a little environmental at home, is make sure those gloves and masks that you're using to protect yourself 
are, are thrown in the trash so that you can protect others that are going to end up walking by your discarded waste. Yeah, and it, actually those masks don't so much protect ourselves as other people from us. Uh, so what's the point if you're going to throw it on the ground? Oh, exactly. I, I think I think we people just need to take a second choice. I, I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, we take for granted that uh, waste gets uh, disappears from our eyes from time to time, but it really sticks out at the end of a winter season when you look along our roadways and see that. And, and as you said earlier, I'm not noticing parking lots, uh, uh, discarded gloves and masks, and I, I just don't know why people wouldn't take the extra step and throw that in the bin and protect others. Now, one of the things I've noticed, and in my own um, attempts, you know, just when you're making headway of trying to do that, now everything is packaged. It's much more packaged in order to be safe. So, you know, where I used to pick out my green beans, I can't do that anymore at the supermarket, and, and it is like that for just about every product you can think of. And if you, you know, were getting something bespoke that, you know, somebody might cut for you uh, in a shop, uh, that's not happening anymore. Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of the, the transition we're, we're looking at uh, uh, with regards to packaging. I know uh, that that's the balance. That's why, I, you know, it'd be hard to have a complete uh, plastic ban in our communities when, when you know, health, health risks arise. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, trying to reduce packaging overall. And, and there are items outside of food that uh, you, mean, you, can, you can look at reducing your, your pick of, of, of packaging. Uh, we're moving as a government to change our recycling program where the producer now is going to be paying for the system, which will incentivize them to come up with newer ways of packaging. And, and hopefully they come up with packaging uh, uh, that is biodegradable or friendlier to the environment. So, that's the long-term goals, but the short-term goals is, you know, do look after yourself, look after your health, but uh, when you have the opportunity, uh, try try to select items that uh, have, have less packaging. Minister Jeff Urich, what would you like to leave us with on all of this? Well, I, I want to thank those out there in the community who are, are picking up litter and, and putting them in the right place, and just to, to those out there, you know, it's the first step uh, improving the environment in this province is looking after your own little area in town, and I encourage everyone to safely get out and pick up litter and, and, and not just look at it as a springtime event, continue it all through summer and fall and winter makes it a little bit harder, but do it your best you can to, to learn the rules of recycling and, and, uh, and organic waste and garbage and make sure we do our part to, to keep environment clean. Ontario Environment Minister Jeff Urick in conversation with Libby Snymer. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Case called Fight Back to talk about the growing litter problem during the pandemic. Uh, yeah, I live on a rural road up in Callanan. And uh, literally, <laughs> no pun intended, I am finding some weird things that have been tossed into the ditch. Uh, even the flat screen TV, uh, old tires, uh, you name it, and people will come out of an area here where there's no houses and literally just throw that out of their car. Uh, people like to uh, take that out, and by the time they get up here where I am, it goes out the window because they've finished their drink. And beer cans and whiskey bottles, people are drinking in their cars, so... I'm just appalled at what I see, and I have cleaned up a lot of the stuff myself and uh, sorted it in my own garbage for pickup. But I can't understand why the town of Caledon doesn't put some people to work 
to pick this stuff up uh, when we have mass unemployment, and you can certainly keep your spacing out here. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Patricia in Ajax, who phoned with her view of COVID-19 in long-term care as one of the founders of the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. My view is that there needs to be a full public inquiry and it needs to be an investigative inquiry and it needs to have a very broad mandate. And I also believe that there need to be police investigations into what's occurred in long-term care. If you read the inspection reports, it certainly raises questions about whether criminal acts have taken place. And I think police should be asked to start with those inspection reports. The other thing that's not appropriate is that the Ford government totally reduced the number of inspections, resident quality inspections that were taking place. Those are the comprehensive inspections that we actually need. And we need a strengthened inspection branch, not a weakened one. And quite frankly, we shouldn't be institutionalizing this number of older adults anyway. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. And have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. That's 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join Libby tomorrow for a special Victoria Day Fight Back. And join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.